0: Welcome to the Staying Ages podcast, a show that will equip you with the major keys to achieve extraordinary longevity. This is your girl, Associate, E., also known as Raw Girl. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach. And today on the show, we will be talking about a very hot and important topic to address, which is Black maternal health and how to give birth safely in America. To get this longevity party started, I'm gonna give you a brief rundown of the common complications during pregnancy, current statistics on Black maternal mortality, rates and different safe options to consider while preparing to give birth. Later today, we'll be chatting with our expert, the amazing Nasima Elroy, author of The Financially Intentional and also a labor and delivery nurse. I am so grateful to have each and every one of you tuning into the show from all over the world. Shout out to listeners in the USA, the UK, Ireland, Spain, South Africa. I'm in Cape Town right now recording this, France, Germany, and much more. If today's show inspires you, I'm inviting you to go ahead and subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It means the world to me to get feedback, so any reviews are much appreciated. All right, all right. I don't know if y'all have heard, but there's been a lot of discussion around why it's dangerous for Black women to give birth in America. So I really wanted to address it with an episode. My clients actually put me on to the new Hulu documentary, Aftershock. It's on on Hulu. It reflects the stories of two healthy African-American women who died as a result of giving childbirth. And uh, the personal and heartbreaking stories are punctuated by the women's family's push for changes to address Black maternal mortality. I got to be completely honest with you, child. I have not watched it yet because I'm just not in the place where I want to watch that kind of trauma. Um, it really upsets me. And knowing the stats is enough to freak almost anyone out a little bit. But for me and all of my clients, especially the Black women who are preparing for pregnancy or are in that process now, um. We can be left with questions like, where is it safe to be a birthing Black woman? And so I want to address some things that we can consider and things that we can do to keep ourselves safe. Too frequently, women and families in the United States experience inadequate maternity care that is not easily accessible, secure, woman-centered, evidence-based, or affordable. The Black Maternal Mortality Rate, MMRs, refers to the number of deaths among African-American women who give birth each year. Between 2016 and 2018, the MMR was 41.4 deaths per 100,000 live births for non-Hispanic Black persons, and this is according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Research done in 2020 by the National Center for Health Statistics showed that the maternal mortality rate for non-Hispanic Black women rose to 55.3 deaths per 100,000 live births which is 2.9 times the rate for non-Hispanic white women. Rates also increase with maternal age. So in 2020, it was 13.8 deaths per 100,000 live births for women, Black women under the age 25. And then it was 22.8 deaths per 100,000 for those age 25 to 39. And then it was 107.9 deaths per 100,000 live births for those age 40 and over. Black maternal mortality is also linked to Black infant mortality, obviously. In 2016, the rate of Black infant mortality was 12.6 deaths per 1,000 births among Black babies compared to 8.2 deaths per 1,000 births among white babies. The infant mortality rate in 2018 was 10.8 deaths per 1,000 live births compared to the rate of 4.6 deaths per 1,000 live births for white babies. In an effort to find some of the reasons behind these high death rates, Hardiman, an associate professor at the University of Minnesota School of Public Health, and three other researchers combed the records of 1.8 million Florida hospital births between 1992 and 2015, and they were looking for clues. They found a tantalizing statistic in the Florida births. Although Black newborns are three times as likely to die as white newborns, when the doctor of record for Black newborns, primarily pediatricians, neonatologists, and family practitioners, was also Black, their mortality rate as compared with white newborns was cut in half. So just by having a Black doctor, mortality rate was cut in half. They found an association, not a cause and effect, and the researcher said more studies are needed to understand what effect, if any, a doctor's race might have on infant mortality. Well, I think that statistic speaks for itself <laughs> as far as what we could take away from it. Um, some of the leading causes of death among Black women who gave birth are complications related to pregnancy, childbirth, and peripiram. These include hemorrhage, hypertensive disorders, septicemia, embolic events, amniotic fluid embolism, eclampsia, preeclampsia. Other causes of death include suicide, homicide, drug abuse, diabetes, mellitus, chronic kidney disease, and HIV AIDS. Preeclampsia, or elevated blood pressure, occurs in about 5 to 10% of pregnancies. It's characterized by high blood pressure, proteinuria, um, edema, headaches, visual changes, and liver problems. Symptoms may appear at any time during pregnancy. Eclampsia is a severe complication of preeclampsia that affects 2 to 10% of pregnant women. It's marked by seizures, coma, and organ failure. Severe preeclampsia or eclampsia is associated with an increased risk of maternal morbidity and mortality. Infection during pregnancy is another leading cause of maternal mortality. The risk of infection is the highest in the first trimester. Infections during pregnancy increase the risk of miscarriage, stillbirth, neonatal death, and low birth weight. Research also highlights the role of racism and discrimination. Racism and discrimination play a huge role in driving racial disparities in maternal and infant health. Research has documented that social and economic factors, so racism, chronic stress, all these things contribute to poor maternal and infant health outcomes, including higher rates of perinatal depression and preterm birth among African-American women and higher rates of mortality among Black infants. In recent years, research and news reports have raised attention to the effects of provider discrimination during pregnancy and delivery. I've been seeing videos floating around social media that are very disturbing of Black pregnant women being berated, being told that they don't need to take sick leave, crazy stuff. Um, News reporting and maternal mortality case reviews have called attention to a number of maternal deaths and near misses among women of color where providers did not or were slow to listen to patients. In one study, indigenous, Hispanic, and Black women reported significantly higher rates of mistreatment, such as shouting and scolding, ignoring or refusing requests for help during the course of pregnancy. Even controlling for insurance status, income, age, and severity of conditions people of color are less likely to receive routine medical procedures and experience a lower quality of care. This stuff is wild, y'all. And, you know, the the stuff that my patients, my clients experience just in general at the doctor's office of being ignored or being scolded or being dismissed, it kind of magnifies when you're in pregnancy because it's such a vulnerable place to be in. I mean, and 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 money... Sure, money can be a factor because of access to care, but you look at people like Serena Williams, you look at different people telling their stories about how they almost died in pregnancy and realize that there's something off there, that people that a Black woman can experience something in a medical environment and it actually not even register as a problem for other people or for for the health providers there. And that is really, 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 really serious and must be dealt with. To prevent these deaths, the CDC recommends that pregnant women receive adequate prenatal care, take their regular visits to their OBGYN, and they should be screened for hypertension, diabetes, substance abuse, and depression. But let's keep it real, child. Keeping Black women alive during childbirth requires way much more than ensuring each woman takes the best care of her health and actually goes to her doctor's visits. We need to we need to start eliminating structural barriers to healthcare access. We need to provide culturally competent care. We need to implement policies that promote equity. We need to make sure that black women have advocates when they're in these vulnerable positions that can speak on their behalf if they can't speak or if they're in too much pain to even, you know, you know, advocate for themselves um, or, or family members are present. Um, Black women who experience higher rates of poverty, lower levels of education, and less access to healthcare service are a greater risk for adverse outcomes. But I will say that even if you don't have those issues, the thing that's so frightening about documentaries like Aftershock is like these were completely healthy women who had relatively good access to care and still ended up passing away unnecessarily. So I really believe... That as a Black woman to give birth safely in America, you need to, first off, be intentional about the providers that you engage to support your birthing process. Do not compromise. Do not compromise on who you choose to be a part of your birthing team. Second, you should have advocates available at every single step of the process. You should have family members. You should have backup family members. If you need to have a legal support on standby, child, do it. You should choose providers of color to immediately decrease chances of infant mortality. The the stat that it cuts infant mortality in half is wild. So not having a black doctor is really literally like putting yourself at risk to some degree. But obviously the race of your provider is only one aspect. You need to feel comfortable with that person. You need to feel that that person is invested it's possible to have someone of the same race of you that is not invested, and I've had patients where I've moved them or we've found a better provider that actually was of another race, but they were just really empathetic and really cared about the patient. So that's really, in my book, what matters the most. And then the last thing that you need to do um, is engage with other options besides birth in a hospital when it's possible and your pre-existing health conditions are not an issue. It's important to note. That the perinatal care system in the United States is unique as compared with systems of other countries in a number of ways. In the U.S., it's a regionalized system of maternity care, so that involves potential for transfers from one level to another, and this type of system requires strong relationships and communications between facilities so that individuals receive the appropriate level of care, and that always that it isn't always there. The way that medical care is paid for in the United States is also unique. So women are relying on a variety of mechanisms, including private insurance, um, both purchased individually and employer-sponsored, Medicaid, Medicare, self-pay. Each of these payers have different eligibility requirements, cover services and providers differently, and entails variable out-of-pocket costs. So it can get really confusing and, and and very intense um, with all the different options out there. And then finally, the U.S. has three distinct nationally credentialed types of midwives, each of which completes different education and training requirements and whose authority to practice varies by state. These traits make maternal maternity care in the United States complex and they can make it make it very difficult for women and families to negotiate the care system and can have consequences for access to care and health outcomes. I know it could feel like even just talking through that, it can seem like there's just too much to work through. But but you can start with what do you have? What insurance do you have? What do you have available to you? What is your budget? Um, what kinds of providers you want to have around you? I, the main birth options, I feel that it's very important for Black women to consider are who and where. So who, the who is so important meaning what health professionals, which health professionals do you want involved in your process? Do you want a midwife, a doula, OBGYN, registered nurse, a nutritionist? Whatever it is, whoever you want on your team, that's the who. And the who are people that you must feel are empathetic towards you, who understand your health conditions, who are rooting for you, who um who speak affirmatively over your life and the life of your child. All of those things are very important. And then the other thing is the where. In the United States, the vast majority of 98.4% of women give birth in hospitals with 0.99% giving birth at home and 0.52% giving birth in a freestanding birth center. So you have the option of a birth center. Uh, The birth centers have been around since the 1800s. They were not really widely accepted until recently, In the past, women would give birth at home, often without any medical assistance. But a a birth center is defined as a freestanding health facility, not attached to or inside a hospital. So they're completely outside of hospitals. They're intended for low-risk women who desire less medical intervention during birth in a home-like atmosphere with an emphasis on individually tailored care. The number of birth centers are actually increasing in the United States. There's 375 such centers in operation as of November 2019. I can't imagine if they've gone up in 2022. I I, I think that they might have. In a review of birth centers in 33 states, Stapleton and colleagues found that 23.8% of birth center participants were Medicaid enrollees and 28.3% had equal to or less than a high school education. Birth center care is typically led by midwives, um, CNMs, CMs, and certified professional midwives, sometimes with additional care from other maternal, uh, maternity care support staff, such as registered nurses, doulas, and birth assistants. In 2017, 56.6% of births at birth centers were attended by CNMs or CMs, 36.7% by CPMs, and 2.7% by physicians. And if you want to get more into mid- midwifery and how it can benefit you, please go back and listen to my past episode with amazing, with an amazing midwife who really breaks it down and, and talks about her perspective. Uh, midwives and birth centers provide the full scope of maternity care from prenatal through postpartum periods out to the first six to eight weeks following birth, as well as newborn care. Then you have the option, obviously, to consider birthing at home, especially if you are someone who does not have many pre-existing health conditions, if you don't feel like you're quote-unquote higher risk for anything, um, home birth is a really, really comfortable and plausible option for you. Women have been giving birth naturally in their homes for thousands of years. In fact, many cultures around the world still practice home birth today. There are several advantages to having a home birth, including lower risk of infection, less pain, and fewer medical interventions. Very important because there's a lot of medical interventions that are occurring in hospitals that are actually unnecessary. However, it's not always possible to do a home birth because of medical reasons, financial constraints, personal preference. If you choose to have a home birth, make sure you have access to a midwife or doctor if complications arise. And really the biggest disadvantage is that it's not regulated by any governing body. There are no laws or regulations regarding how many people should be present, what type of equipment should be used, or whether or not a woman should receive medication, for some people, this actually is an advantage because they can design a personalized experience. They can find healthcare providers that will come to their home that they trust, that can, um, and they can approve every part of that process. So it really depends on the person. And then there's hospital birth. Hospitals are the most common place, of course, in the United States, um, for people, for women to give birth. And among birth settings, hospitals provide the widest array of medical interventions for pregnant women and newborns. However, there is a wide variation in provider types and practices among hospitals. So a woman's experience may vary really wildly from hospital to hospital, depending on such factors as the hospital's level of care, the staffing the maternal fetal status, local values and culture, resources and more. So it's really, really, really important if you're giving birth in a hospital, please do your research. Know the people who are going to be there present. Know who's going to be there with you. Know the track record of the facility. Um, it's, it's super, super, super important. Um, for example, a study of 88 hospitals in Michigan found that 43.2% of hospitals had no vaginal birth after cesarean between 20, 2009 and 2015, and among the hospitals that had at least one vaginal birth after cesarean rates ranged from 0.5% to 48.1%. The study's authors concluded that the choice of hospital can significantly impact the individual's chances of having a vaginal birth after a cesarean. Even just having a vaginal birth versus a cesarean, you can look up a hospital and see that some hospitals may have doctors who are constantly doing cesareans, even if they're not necessary. Care providers at hospital maternity care units may include nurses, obstetricians, family physicians, pediatricians, and midwives. Um, Although family physicians and midwives do not practice in all maternity care units. Some hospitals may also have specialists such as anesthesiologists, maternal fetal medicine specialists, and neonatologists immediately available or on call. Despite their variation, the vast majority of hospital births are attended by physicians. 90.6 of, uh, uh, 90.6% of hospital births were attended by physicians in 2017, while 8.7% were attended by certified nurse midwives or certified midwives. And then last but not least, there are also in-hospital birthing centers. So you're still in the hospital, but you're in a birthing center. Some hospitals in the United States have separate units within or associated with the labor and delivery unit that offer women a more home-like atmosphere. These units are often called birth centers by the hospital. However, the services they offer and the extent to which they resemble freestanding birth centers vary, very wildly. Some like freestanding birth centers use the midwifery model of care. um, Some are only available to low-risk mothers, um, and some offer only physiologic birth without medical interventions. For example, in the Midwifery Center of Tuscan Medical Center in Arizona, it's located within the hospital, but it offers a low-intervention midwife-led birth experience. If complications arise or if the woman desires or needs an epidural, she can quickly be transferred to the hospital's standard labor and delivery unit. These types of units are called alongside maternity senators by the Commission for the Accreditation of Birthing Centers. I hope this information gets you thinking, child, if you haven't given birth yet, about options that you can get clear about to make your birthing experience a great one. I know it's a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) I'm really, really excited. Lately, to be working with many more pregnant clients, and I am now working on a pregnancy prep academy. It has two options. The first is for aspiring pregnant mothers who are looking to get ready for pregnancy, get their body ready and prepare to conceive. And the second is for pregnant mothers who want nutritional support for each trimester so that their diet will support the best pregnancy outcome possible. If you or someone you know is interested in pregnancy prep, DM me on Instagram at the raw girl or email my assistant, rawgirlassistant at gmail.com. All right, y'all, we're going to take a short break, but when we get back, we'll be speaking to our amazing guests. So stay tuned. Are you a woman struggling with horrible periods, fibroids, endometriosis, PCOS, infertility, or unsavory menopausal symptoms? I'm associate E, also known as The Raw Girl of therawgirl.com. I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach. And in my Hormone Balancing Academy, me and my team can help you approach any hormonal challenge you are facing from a holistic perspective. Don't take my word only for it. Here's a snippet from a recent client whose fibroid shrunk after following my recommendations.
1: Um, come to find out, my fiber shrunk to a 1.5. Yes, Jesus. (laughs) I was so happy and grateful to God and Sosa and, you know, just her program really. Outside of my fiber shrinking, I am off of chicken, so I don't do meat. Yes, Jesus. (laughs) And I don't do dairy. Don't, you know, we don't do that anymore. And my weight is steadily at a one, 101 pounds as of today. So my weight did go up. Um, so I'm really happy with, you know, with my results. I'm really grateful to, you know, to God and to, to ASOS and her her Raw Girl program. And I highly, highly, highly recommend you sign up for Raw Girl. You won't regret it.
0: Just in case you missed it, head on back to season six and hear more of the amazing glow up stories from women who have overcome infertility, normalized incessant periods, and much more. If you or someone you know are interested in reaching your hormonal health goals with support this year, visit therawgirl.com to sign up for a free 20 minute call and a member of our team will talk to you. Until then, stay healthy and happy. Nasima McElroy is a published author and the founder of Financially Intentional, a platform about personal finance and living life intentionally. Nasima discusses how taking control of her finances has enabled her to overcome bankruptcy and divorce and break the cycle of living paycheck to paycheck. She shares her lessons along her path to helping others benefit from the freedoms of financial independence. Outside of encouraging people to get their financial act together, Nasima is a mother, labor, and delivery nurse. And though making six figures for years, she struggled with money. Finally realizing she couldn't outearn her financial ignorance, she knew she had to make some changes. By shifting her mindset around money and being consistent and intentional, she has paid off $1 million in debt and grew a six-figure net worth in three years without living in deprivation. Hello, Nasima. I'm so excited to have you on Staying Ages today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I stumbled upon you on the gram and I was like, say what? Like I saw the post and then I was like, I need to talk to this woman. Like this, this is like, these are going to give me so much gems for my clients. And plus I just, I love hearing the experiences of other healthcare practitioners, but I want to start with like where, how did you get into what, what led you to become a labor and delivery nurse in the first place? Like how did that, how did that path shape for you?
2: It was actually very non-traditional, um, started off like most kids wanting to be a doctor. And the reason why I wanted to be a doctor though, was because of access, right? Um, I grew up kind of like skating that poverty line. Like we didn't have enough, I mean, we made too much money to like be on, you know, Medi-Cal or, you know, Medi- uh, Medicaid. but we um, didn't make enough money to have health insurance when health insurance was super expensive before Obamacare. Access to health insurance was kind of prohibited for a lot of people. And so I grew up not having health insurance, raised by a single dad with asthma. And, you know, as a kid, you know, those asthma attacks are crucial. And so sitting hours in a clinic With asthma, (laughs) it's not very conducive to having a good quality of life. So um, I was like, I want to be a doctor because I thought doctors could increase access. When I got into um, college and I realized, oh, doctors don't do that, I kind of changed paths and became... um, and, and then I was um, in healthcare care, like health promotion, disease prevention. Later in healthcare administration, and I was like, okay, I'm going to be an administrator. I can start my own clinic, and then that way I can affect change. You know, graduated with my um, master's in healthcare administration. Started working for a big health care organization, and then realized that's not what they did. They really didn't right. care about that. They really cared about the bottom line. And being the youngest and the brownest person in the room and with a big mouth from Oakland, it wasn't a good fit for me. And so I exited healthcare administration. All my friends were nurses and I saw what they did and I loved the autonomy that they had, but also the actual impact they had on patients. And I was like, this is what I wanted to do. Ended up going back to nursing school. Oh wow! Um, yeah, after already having my master's degree, I did an accelerated nursing program. But in that program, um, I had to pick a master's, so I chose to have a master's in um, as a family nurse practitioner, so that you know I can you know affect uh, um, you know treat people from the cradle to the grave. So I did that. And then when it was time like, to go into that master's program, it was time for me to get a job as a nurse. And because I wanted to be in family, I was like, oh, the best place for me would be starting in maternity where I see I work with families. And so right. that's how I got into labor and delivery and actually loved it so much, even though I'm licensed as a family nurse practitioner. I have not practiced a day after 10 years of being licensed as a family nurse practitioner because I love being a labor and delivery nurse.
0: Wow, that's so cool. That's really, really cool. That's very Very. (laughs) non-traditional. So you definitely got, you got a whole bunch of different views of the healthcare system before you ended up doing what you did. Okay. Yes. That makes sense. Okay. So break it down for me. Like what was your experience in, like what really, what were some key differences that you noticed if you noticed any differences between patients of color, non-patients of color, What things do you think that could be improved in the system while you were working in it?
2: Well, I think like, um, so for context, I'm in the San Francisco Bay area and a lot of people look at the San Francisco Bay area as like this kind of melting pot, Mm -hmm. but there aren't really a lot of black people here (laughs) when you look at like the numbers and, you know, and it depends on where you work. And so um, people don't have a lot of experience working, um, with Black women or understanding um, all of the little nuances that go into like the uh, comorbidities that affect us, like why the, the Black maternal um, morbidity and mortality rates are so high. Like yeah. So they're unconsciously contributing to these things, but not really understanding the problem, but perpetuating the problem. And so it's not really addressed and it's really high here. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, I kind of see those factors kind of as at the terminal end, right? When they've all compounded and now we're experiencing a mom who is going to be really, really sick or die because of all these things that have... Um, happen and have compounded because of the care that they are receiving or have not received. And a lot of it is just because a lot of providers just don't listen to
0: the patients. That part, that yeah. part, <laughs> that part, literally as most of my clients all the time, th- it comes down to health professionals do not listen to them. Now there's a second por- part to the issue, which is most of the times those health providers unfortunately don't have the skills to like holistically address that issue that's what i do so that's another issue but at least be able to listen and provide an ear where you're deeply listening to that person where you're actually listening and you're paying attention to that person that is something that i really wish just overall i just feel like there just needs to be like some reeducation
2: But a lot of people just don't understand the implicit biases that are built into the healthcare system in general that affect us. And these things go back to slavery or before, because, you know, first of all, we're not considered human in medical textbooks. We're treated not as such, even to this day. Mm -hmm. Our pain levels aren't, um, you know, taken seriously. And when we speak up and advocate for ourselves, of course, we don't know what we're talking about. And so oftentimes it sets us up to be like, well, are we tripping? And then we let these issues go and they compound. And I know you deal with issues like fibroid, infertility, fibroids, infertility. Like these are things that if caught early or if there's some kind of treatment or a way to address it because you know these things are going to happen, they can be handled. And um, they often aren't. <laughs> and then we don't address it because we're just like, well, we're not professionals or maybe we're tripping and we're not taught to really speak up for ourselves and advocate for ourselves. And so, um, yeah, it just becomes an issue to the point oh, where we are dying just for become, from becoming pregnant.
0: Oh, Lord, 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 Lord. So <laughs> what can we do? Like, what are some of the points in the, like, I mean, for me, I usually start with like, who is my doctor in the first place? <laughs> that part. Like, if I don't vibe with you... <laughs> I don't suffer fools lightly anyway. So I already have like these, you know, specific teams of health professionals that I'm like, these are the people that I deal with for these different things. So if I was personally, if I was like, okay, I'm ready to give birth, I would really want to feel comfortable with that person. Where would you say that they should start? Is that Yeah, that's where
2: you start. Like that's a place where you do have some control. Unfortunately, because doctors typically aren't on call 24-7, Which back in the day, like if you had your doctor, that's your family doctor, that's the doctor that's going to show for delivery, but it's just not practical anymore. Mm. So a lot of doctors are in groups, right? Or if you have like a system like Kaiser, you have no control who's going to deliver your baby. It can be a resident, it could be whoever. And so let me just approach it on those, from those two different angles. Yes. So if you don't have a doctor, there are some like few and far between doctors that will see all of their patients and deliver all their patients and like maybe twice a year, take a vacation where they're not there. So if you can find a doctor like that, that you know, and trust, stick to them. Okay. okay? Um, and then uh, on the back end, there's birthing centers and all this other kind of stuff that I don't really cover, but there's those options as well. Yes. If the, uh, if the case is that you're in a medical group, you need to be comfortable with the people in that group. You need to make sure that like they understand, the like all of the people, like all of the doctors, cause it's going to be all of them. So you need to get comfortable with all of those doctors <laughs> and kind of, uh, so these are the things that we have to do and it's, it's heartbreaking wow. and there's a lot. And that's why people don't do it because it's overwhelming. Like you have to be hyper vigilant. Um, but it's necessary. Like <laughs> we, like it's, it's a life or death thing. And I think um, people spend so much time planning for their gender reveals and their baby showers, but they don't put enough effort into this part. And yeah. so I'm really trying to have people shift the, shift their focus on what's really important. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, make sure, you know, all those people in that practice, you're comfortable with them and they're familiar with, you know, what your specific needs are. Um, and then if you're like at a place like a Kaiser where you just show up to the birthing center and you don't know if it's gonna be a resident, a midwife, a doctor is who's ever there, and you can see a gamut of people over the time that you're there, um you need to be able to have somebody there for you to advocate for you um, that knows you and know that you can refuse a resident, you can refuse any doctor, um, you can uh, you can escalate issues if you're not feeling heard. So like, those are some kind of things, but also like, know where, and this, everything I'm telling you is from the perspective of you're going to deliver at a traditional hospital or institution. So um, know which hospital you're going to go to, know what services they have, um, because your doctor is privileged typically at one or two hospitals. So you have to figure out like, about that hospital, like, what is their C-section rate? What are their rooms look like? What are their staff? What does their staff look like? And you're, at, you're able to answer, they ask those kind of questions during your prenatal visits. And these are choices that you should make. Like, if you're not cool with where your doctor is delivering, you can't, you can't use that doctor. She's <laughs> not right. going to be able to hop to the next hospital with you. Right. And so like, those are things that we have to empower ourselves to know. And that's just in the planning
0: process. No, that makes a lot of sense. We're, okay, so I hear you saying we should ask these questions, but I also hear from my clients a lot. I've asked these questions and people are not giving me vague answers or they're ignoring me. Yeah. Like, what do you do?
2: You have to stand (laughs) firm. You have to stand firm in your power. And that's the whole thing. Like I said, a lot of people just don't feel like dealing with it. They don't feel like dealing with it in the front end and they don't feel like dealing with it in the back end. Like when something happens, like cases go underreported. All the time. Yeah. So this is life or death.
0: Is there somewhere else that we can get this information? Like for me, like if someone, if I feel like you are withholding information from you, I'm already, for me, I'm already turned off. Like I'm already like, well, maybe I should find somewhere else. Cause you should be able to openly discuss with me the things that I'm concerned about. And if you can't answer them and you find someone else that can answer them. But if you're being standoffish rude or just ignoring me, then I might just be like, this might not be the place for me. The problem is there's this information is
2: not centralized. It's kind of oh. one of those things where you just kind of have to know. And then if people aren't listening to you, you have to take it upon yourself to escalate the issues and, and do it in writing. And the thing is, is that these institutions don't like things in writing because then, you know, you're already creating um, like some... Uh, evidence <laughs> just in case something does happen. Right. And so like when, say for example, you, you show up for your first prenatal visit and you really think that this is a good provider and you ask those questions and you feel like you are being gaslit and they're not answering your questions, then you, you, you send a letter to that, um, you email them, the provider you email, you know, you try to figure out like, um, the information for, compliance or the information for managers in that organization, CC everybody, let them know exactly what your concerns are, how that interaction made you feel and ask for resources. And and if that's not addressed, you then go on to another provider. And then, you know, if that happens again, you do the same thing, but you have to create a baseline. Like, listen, I'm not about to tolerate this. This is what I need. Um, these are basic things and things that I should have access to. Right. And if you're not providing them for me, then, you know, I need to go elsewhere. But to document that, and it's it's sad that we have to do all of this, but this is what I'm telling you, you have to do to protect yourself.
0: How big is the role? I mean, because doctors are not there 24-7, aren't you going to be interacting with nurses quite a bit? So don't you also have to feel comfortable with the nurses? Yeah. So if you're in the
2: setting, like you're you're in you're delivering, and you're in a setting where you feel like nurses aren't listening to you, so let me tell you the chain of command for that. So um, if a nurse isn't listening to you, you ask for the charge nurse. That's the first step. If the charge nurse, um, if you feel like that's not getting handled at the charge nurse level, you go up to assistant nurse managers, then the manager, then the supervisor. And then it'll go into the administrative level. But don't be afraid to include everybody in that level if it's not being addressed by the first person that you talk to. And so that's the chain of command. Uh, I left out the house supervisor because sometimes at night administration isn't available. So you go charge nurse, manager, supervisor, house supervisor. And then it goes to administration and you do not stop advocating for yourself until your needs are met, until you feel hurt.
0: Love that. Um, In these situations, like, at least in my experience, like, because I've also been like a caregiver and helped, like I helped my father recently, like recover from a stroke. And I swear these fools would have killed him several times if I didn't be like, dad, don't take that medication. You don't need that. Whatever. Right. So. If you don't, ha- like, it seems like you need somebody also to be kind of a point person that can escalate. Yes. Especially if you're in pain, let's say I'm in straight up pain and I can't even think clearly, you know. <laughs> Listen, let me tell you something. When I had my babies
2: as a nurse, when I had my babies, like my partner knew what was going on. I told him like, hey, this is the situation. This is the person that you call to ask questions because I know in this situation, you probably aren't going to be able to advocate. So I gave him a call list, like call this person. They will tell you, you know, what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. And often I'm that person. I'm that person for most of my family and my friends. Like recently I walked in just visiting my friend's dad in the hospital and he basically coded and nobody was in the room. And I was like resuscitating him as a visitor and they were like slow motion. And if I wasn't there, it would have been a crazy situation. And then at that point, yeah, I asked to speak to the manager, the supervisor, everybody escalated the issue to where, you know, I had the, the top surgeons coming down there talking and consulting to me about his plan so it's just like if you it's, it's scary af frightening but you always have to have a trusted person to advocate for yourself as a matter of fact like because of all this like i have like considered just creating like a consulting company where this is what i just do for black moms it's just like i'll like, be your advocate you know
0: yeah. No, <laughs> because it's so needed it's so needed like i'm sure <laughs> Child, I'll give you a list of people who probably signed up. (laughs) Right. (laughs) No, seriously. My goodness. That is wild. Resuscitating someone as a visitor. (laughs) That's wild. Uh, Is there any way to know, like... I mean, like, does it matter the size of the hospital, the size of the... Or, no, it doesn't matter. It can happen
2: anywhere at any time, um, even if it's at the best institutions. And I have worked at some of the best institutions in the country, and it go, it, it still goes down. Um, <laughs> yeah, you just you just have to know the thing. The the most important thing I tell people, and I tell my patients this, like everybody. Trust your instincts because you're going to be the first person to know if something is wrong. Don't downplay those things and speak up and mm-hmm. make sure that you're being heard and your and your issues are being addressed.
0: Is it harder now for people to have an advocate because of the like, COVID rules and mm-hmm. stuff?
2: Yes. So that is a big issue because we're only... Yeah, it's crazy. And um, I just posted something that the the rates of black morbidity and mortality have increased by 33% during COVID because of this. So um, yeah, so you don't have access to having like that extra person in the room that is like there hands on um to be there with you. Usually you have um just one visitor if that and during the height of COVID, you know, they wasn't letting nobody else in the hospital. So you even the support person wasn't in there, and then compound and then you put COVID on top of it where people don't, you know, people did not know how to manage COVID before, right? right. You know, and so just all these things um, are factored in. So any time there's any kind of like hiccup in the medical system that causes distress to everybody black people feel it more exponentially and that's less. i said in this post like when america gets uh cold black people get pneumonia because we are so we have so many variables already that are working against us once you add another variable into it it just increases right. our, our our risk so my mm-hmm.
0: goodness my.
2: And then like, let's talk about like the fact that this Roe versus way stuff is happening. Like mm-hmm. that's another scary issue on top of it. And it's only going to affect us like not only, um, Uh, physically but also legally like if people are going to report people that have these illegal abortions or whatever who you think they're going to report first they're going to report this black person first not even knowing the situation Right? you know they're going to report you first and so we already got issues with the legal system so this just compounds onto that and so like I just The man, people just don't understand the implications of these things. Like, why introduce just another level of complexity onto something that's already jacked up? The system is already jacked up. Access is already messed up. Now you're going to have these pregnant women having these undesired pregnancies or pregnancies that are non that are threatening them their lives, and they can't even get the care that they need. So Agreed. it's scary. It's scary it's out here in these streets. Even for me, it's scary, and that's the reason why I choose to stay in healthcare because I need my advocates. I need to know. <laughs> Listen, I need to know my doctors. I need to know who's uh, treating me. Like I have real control uh, issues when it comes to that, and because it's it's scary. It's frightening.
0: It's yeah. Frightening. Um. So we get like for me, I'm I'm one thing I want to harp on that you're saying that's so necessary for people to hear is like, this becomes like a compounded issue. It sounds like it could start at a very small level and then increase, but how, first of all, how do we even know? Like, is it just that we just need to immediately address anything that doesn't feel right? Is that what it is? (laughs) Immediately. Like immediately, like, like every issue. And the thing is
2: that we always get labeled and I always get called. Rude, As we're the difficult, the angry black women. We got attitudes. We're aggressive. We're scary. People don't want to deal with us. Like I always get those patients. Those are my patients. The ones. Right. Oh, oh, Nasima's here. She could take this patient because, you know, they're a little challenging. You know, it's always me. And the whole <laughs> thing is usually, like you said, we go in there and then you figure out, oh, like you just didn't even listen to them. You ought to, you base exactly you based your care off of an assumption and like the big post that, um, I share like talking about like the patting of the hair kind of thing. That and was how that trip.
0: I saw that post and I was like, <laughs> like that, it was hilarious to me because from the moment you said it, I was like, she got a weave. She got a weave. She, gotta weave. <laughs> she can't get
2: to her hair.
0: Yeah, she can't get to her scalp. I mean, sometimes depending on how my
2: hair is, I'm going to pat my hair, you know, like I don't want to mess it up. And I tell one my one daughter to do it because she rips clothes. out her hair, you know?
0: Like she's literally being flagged for literally <laughs> mental health issues. Right. And so people don't understand the indication. So at
2: that point, <laughs> you should be like, OK, boom, I'm going to need you to like step back and understand that this is how we scratch our head. And I'm going to need you to like re- do your assessment or whatever, because imagine that mom could have had a psyche valve put in. If the psyche, if the person in psych didn't understand the issue, they could have put a diagnosis on her that would have followed have her
0: medication for the rest of her life. And,
2: and then when pregnant women, you know, any kind of issues like that come up, of course, then Child Protective Services is, gets involved. She could have lost her child. Like people don't understand like the sequelae of events that could happen over something so benign. So every single little issue, like even if you feel like you're being a nag or a bee or whatever you want to call it, speak up because nobody's going to advocate for you like you can. And you just typically do not understand how these things compound and can affect your health.
0: Okay. And then we need to get this stuff in writing. How do we report people? We need to find out their supervisors, the chain of Mm -hmm. command. Yep. They all have cards.
2: They'll give you a card, ask for their card, ask um, in there. So the things that people don't read when you go to the hospital, all those papers have Mm -hmm. phone numbers, have contact information, have things, have hotlines that you need to call. People ignore this stuff all the time. Let me tell you, I know, because I give it to them and they just leave it in the room. So don't ignore those things. They always have contact information, get in contact with member services. There's always an ombudsman at the hospital where, which is just in charge of taking care of these issues. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Don't be afraid to escalate it in writing. Everything should be in writing so that you have it documented that you tried to get these issues addressed just in case you do then need to involve counsel. You need to involve a lawyer to kind of step in and, a lot of people think like they wait for the worst event to happen, and then they say, "Oh, I need to call a lawyer." Get your lawyer involved then, because now you're you're being proactive, and these things can be prevented. And that's for a healthcare provider too. So from my standpoint, like if there's anything that happens um, where I feel like I use my voice to speak for somebody, and now it's coming back up against me. Guess who's going to be CC'd in those emails? My lawyer. And guess what they do? They back the fuck up. Like, they leave me alone.
0: Right. Right. No, it makes sense. Yeah. makes sense. If if someone's choosing to give birth in a hospital, are there things that they should bring with them or think about besides, obviously, knowing the staff, knowing their doctor, knowing the lay of the land and the services?
2: I think people bring too much stuff. <laughs> it's nothing yeah. that you really need. Yes. It's really nothing that you really need. Like we have everything in the hospital. It's actually kind of one of my pet peeves.
0: <laughs> Some nice. people
2: just bring stuff, but like really not really, like I said, people focus too much on the things and not, God. the and not the information and Good. not the advocacy and mm-hmm. not under the understanding of the process. Mm-hmm. I mean, Do you know how many people I had to tell like that the baby comes out of their vagina at the time that they're giving birth and that the vagina is a different hole than what they pee out of and what they poop out of? Are you serious? I'm not playing. Whoa. So when I tell you people are not ready to have babies and they focus on their baby showers more than they focus on that process, I just want you to come knowledgeable. right? I want you to like, don't come to me talking about you went on a natural labor, but- you don't even know what a natural labor is and you right. have never like taken any classes or you can't even, these girls don't even know how to do a push up. Okay. <laughs> you have, you have no muscle tone. You can't handle a vag exam, but you want a natural labor. You don't even understand what that means. Somebody just told it to you. So you think that's what you're supposed to do. Oh, like Lord. just come prepared. Like don't yeah. focus on the stuff focus on the process, focus on what you really want to happen. Even birth plans, like people come with these birth plans thinking that they're prepared. They haven't even read them and they don't even know what they mean. They just printed it off of an Etsy shop or Google, uh, you know, something that they Googled and they don't really understand that. Like truly understand what you want to happen to your body, truly understand what you, what experience you want to have and truly understand what's going on with you. If you know you're coming in high risk, with high blood pressure, understand what that treatment looks like. And if you don't understand that, these are the questions that you should be asking. You have 50 million prenatal appointments. Engage your provider. Right. No, I agree. (laughs) People don't do that. Yeah, I
0: agree. I've helped a lot of women now go do birthing plans and help them nutritionally, holistically through their entire pregnancy. And that has been fascinating um, <laughs> because each pregnancy is so different. Yep. You're a mom, right? Yes. I have two girls. Two girls. Yes. Um, if you were having another child, would you give birth in a hospital or would you not? And why?
2: Oh, I definitely would. You know why? Because I love an epidural. And... Oh. <laughs> And it's like work to me. Like I go there, I get my epidural, I go to sleep. I tell them I'm ready to push. I push my baby out and I go my ass home. It's just like a shift, okay? So I like that experience, but I know that experience and I have a, sen- I have a locus of control of that experience. Like right. I would know what to do like at a home birth. Like I don't want to be in a bathtub, like hollering and screaming and doing all of that. Like <laughs> I, I know that I have, um, you know, I have a high pain tolerance, but I don't want to be in pain. Right. I actually enjoyed my birthing process because I didn't have to experience that pain. But that's on me. That's why I said, know what you want. A lot of people yeah. don't know what they want. Yeah, that's what I want. I would definitely deliver in a hospital, but I have to know who my providers are, and I'm coming in there even if I don't like. Listen, I'm a labor and delivery nurse. Don't play me. So <laughs> they don't.
0: Yeah. That's, that's good. I feel like I've been mistreated in health environments, even though I'm a health professional. Like, very oh, all the
2: time, girl. girl. Girl, listen. And every time I do, I
0: holla. Okay. Yeah, I you don't know. Entire, I get their license, their name, their yeah. email, Oh, yes, everything.
2: honey. <laughs> yes, honey. And that's what we have to do. And we're yes. afraid to do it. But a lot of people just aren't like that innately. But when it comes, like I said, we have to look at it like it is. This is life or death.
0: But also the reason why we have to be more vocal is because if we don't say something, somebody else could die at the hands of the health provider or someone else could have some sort of really bad experience. I, I get too many traumatic stories from my clients, from all, you know, all kinds of different health providers that they went to that provided either didn't answer their questions, ignore them, actually were the source of trauma, told them they could never get pregnant, told them this, told them that. People come out their mouth and say things and do things that are really horrible <laughs> in medical environments. So I think it's important that we start checking people. And I think if people are checked more regularly, and then you combine that hopefully with some education. Like right now, I was actually really I was actually impressed by it, but like I'm getting ready to renew my license and now they're re- requiring us to take these bias classes. Right? Yes. And I'm yes. like this should have been there since like, you know
2: what I mean? That's part of, that should be part of your like initial training. But the thing is like, like states like California are requiring this now. And that's only because people had to go to the freaking Geneva convention. And then they had to deem that what we are doing to black women in this country is criminal. And so to address that, they have done that. But you think, I don't, you think Texas is going to be implemented? I doubt it. Do you think alabama's gonna implement it i doubt it you know thank goodness dc is but yeah i mean like but it took that level of action in order to get little changes like that and even in that training we had this train the training too we had to do which was re-traumatizing for me by the way Mm -hmm. but like the nurses on my unit were just like oh my god this doesn't really happen
0: you are the problem okay exactly. I'm gonna need you to really sit down every <laughs> like I took, so there's like a pre-exam and a post I took the pre-exam and passed it already because I was like why do I even have to take this idea but I was like let me just take this class because I should understand how to even use the terminology to explain to yes somebody. hey you have some implicit biases or whatever yes yes <laughs> exactly oh,
2: my you got the you to spin it on them
0: yes before we go um can you what what ha- can you can you break down what happened to you, child? Because that's what got me to call you in the first place. I was like, "What in the world <laughs> is this? What happened?"
2: Oh, uh, I can assume. I'm just gonna assume you're talking about like where I was working and what was going on.
0: You don't have to go into details. Mm-hmm. Just high level. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah, high level. High level. Like I said, I was just working in a place where I was seeing things happen to black women in labor that shouldn't have happened. Like over. And over, again, Um, unnecessary procedures or delays in procedures. Um, What kinds of unnecessary
0: procedures?
2: Unnecessary procedures like emergency C-sections that didn't need to be emergency C-sections. Oh, my God. Um, Like delaying taking somebody for a c-section when they're a vaginal they wanted to have a vaginal delivery after a c-section delaying them for hours only to find out that the baby is halfway out their uterus because their uterus has ruptured like imagine like seeing stuff like that every week (laughs) oh my god like so it was just stuff like that and i was like hey you know like these things don't have to happen these things are preventable and here are the ways where they can be prevented and i took this to the black chief the first time i I worked with the black chief and she basically was like "Mm -mm, we're not gonna do that that's it's your fault that this stuff is happening to your patient and i was like okay i see what i'm working with now so let me just wow yeah
0: (laughs) wow 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 (laughs) <laughs> um. So basically we should take all of the advice that you have given us so that we could hopefully avoid some of this stuff. Do you think that any of those unnecessary things though could have actually been avoided by the patient just by knowing the providers and all that stuff? Because some of that seems like medical... A lot
2: of times they just don't know how to speak up or don't have the capacity. When you're in pain, you don't have the capacity. And then your provider yeah. is the one that... I mean, your um, caregiver is the one that has to speak up. So not having the words or even knowing the steps. Yeah. A, 99% of that stuff can be happened. could be avoided if you actually knew how to speak up and advocate for yourself. And so that's what I'm, you know, being a, a huge proponent for. And, but the thing is, is that some, you just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And we have to start sharing these stories and we have to start yes. talking about it openly and we have to start reporting them so that they can be addressed.
0: Love it. Thank you so much. I probably need to have you back again to talk about some finances (laughs) or something. Where Where can people find you
2: online? So I'm at Financially Intentional. uh, mostly on Instagram, financiallyintentional.com is my website. So you'll go there and you're like, this girl's talking about birth, but she's talking about money. It's all intersected. Like it's all (laughs) money is, (laughs) you know, I talk about financial freedom so that you do have the money to be able to advocate for yourself as a provider. I can say I have F you money. So if I speak up for somebody and the institution doesn't like it and tries to fire me, I'm like, F you, what you going to do? Fire me. It's not not the end of the world. And so that's what I talk about there. So <laughs> hit me up financially intentional at, on Instagram, financiallyintentional.com.
0: Thank you so much. This is the, you're the bomb.com. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Are you interested in living your best healthiest life? I'm associate E also known as the raw girl of the And I'm a certified nutrition specialist and behavioral coach who specializes in helping you discover what exercise and diet is best for your body and get to the root cause and rebalance if you have a serious chronic condition. Clients who've worked with me have reversed diabetes, hypertension, balanced hormonally, gotten rid of acne for good, and lost hundreds of pounds. If you are interested in reaching your health goals with some support this year, Visit therawgirl.com to sign up for a 20-minute call with yours truly. Until then, stay healthy and happy. Okay, y'all, it's time to take a question from Instagram or email. Remember, if you would like to have your question answered on the show, all you got to do is send me a DM, slide up in my DMs on Instagram at therawgirl, or contact me via my website, therawgirl.com. Today's question is from Amanda via Facebook, who says, what can be done to stop so many Black women from dying during childbirth? Is there something doctors can do differently? Hi, Amanda. Thank you so much for writing in your question. I feel like I probably answered your question with a lot of the commentary earlier in this episode, but I'll just riff off of it um, to answer your question. Specifically for doctors, yes, yes, there is something that can be done differently. Recently, I had to um, do my continuing education hours for my license, and I was so happy that they forced us to take a bias in healthcare course. And it's a training course that medical professionals are required to take now um, to really just help people understand unconscious biases that they have. So, I mean, the, the biggest thing that we can do as healthcare professionals is really learn to check our biases have a really deeply think about how if we're, uh, you know, treating one patient different than another and really actually do patients the service of not even engaging them. If you know that you're not really fully there and present for their care. I mean, I, I feel like for me, it's just, I really believe in the oath of do no harm. And I don't know how anyone can call themselves a healthcare professional um, and, and be okay with having the the credentials and the titles, but then not really do the work of caring and really trying to, um, to help every single patient that comes across their desk. I know it can be really, um, emotionally taxing and, you know, in medicine, there is a bit of a detachment. There is a, there's a lot of professionalism that happens and, and stoicism that happens, but I'm kind of the opposite. I can't help it. I care. I am invested in my patients. And I actually do believe that that is the way forward. The way forward is to care. The way forward is to care. I mean, it doesn't mean that you make yourself responsible for every single thing that happens that didn't go out, you know, go the way it was supposed to go, but I think the way forward is to care. Um, and, and I think as black women, as I mentioned earlier, we can do more for ourselves by doing research, staying well-informed, having advocates, making better choices uh, for us that we feel comfortable with, making sure that we get black doctors if we can, or get a doctor that we feel very much empathizes with us and does care about our situation. So I hope that answers your question. I know I went on a little bit of a rant there, (laughs) but thank you. Okay, y'all, it is time to close out today's show. I'm really glad that we got to address this topic, and I really hope that you've learned a thing or two about birthing options and consider some of the stats around Black maternal health and things to think about or ask during the process. So leave a comment or DM me on Instagram at TheRawGirl. If this episode touched you or if it gave you information that you feel like you're going to implement in your life, I really would love to hear that. Hope to hear from you soon. Today, I'm gonna leave you with a quote from Marie Mongan. She says, my dream is that every woman everywhere will know the joy of a truly safe, comfortable, and satisfying birthing for herself and her baby. That is my dream for you as well. And if you're a woman of color who's in the planning phase, I hope this information will not scare you, but just equip you to make the best decisions you can for you and your family to keep you safe during the birthing process. Well, that's all for today, sis. If you're looking for more health tips or have a question for the show, find me on Instagram at The Raw Girl. You can also find me and contact me through my website, TheRawGirl.com. For more on the show or to listen to past episodes, visit StayingAgelessShow.com.